0: I'll say this, though. It's really difficult now to find out what movies are available, where and on what stream. Yes. Like you'd think with like the Internet, everything would be more global. Everything would be more synchronized, but it's not. I feel like it's more fractured than ever now. Yeah. I thought Wonder Woman would be available for VOD through like Crave because they have the partnership with HBO. And then I thought, okay, maybe not. Well, then if you go on Google Play, it's not there either. You actually have to go to Cineplex in Canada. And it is probably one of the last places I would look just because I'm not used to dealing with the Cineplex app, which, by the way, isn't available on all like systems. So like, of course.
1: Yeah, that's what stopped me from. I I had to rent uh, Wonder Woman on YouTube, I think, as a $30 rental, like UHD rental, because um, the Cineplex store wasn't available on Xbox, and that happened to be the device that uh, my family has at home where I was for over the holidays. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, right now with the status of film releasing, and I guess we'll get touch on this a little bit when we talk about Wonder Woman. But it is so fractured, so fragmented, and you'd never know. You have to like become a detective to figure out how you're going to actually watch something, even though you're willing and able to pay for it.
0: It's, it's a little bit wild. Right, so on that note, let's skip to the intro. Welcome to the 88th episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love film and TV. I'm your host, Jason Chen, and I'm joined by my co-host, Robert Snow. In this episode, we wrap up all the December holiday releases, including The Mandalorian, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The Midnight Sky, Soul, and Wonder Woman. So we have a lot to get through, Rob. First of all, let's start with The Mandalorian. So... I mean, long story short, the finale ticked me off to no end.
1: Oh yeah, I was in the same boat. I mean, normally I have a lot of tolerance for Star Wars in general. I've been an apologist for, um, certainly for The Rise of Skywalker. The Last Jedi is, uh, you know, at least with critics, it's, uh, there's less to apologize for, but I'm definitely on their side. But what they decided to do in the finale of The Mandalorian
0: was more than I could take. It was the biggest cop-out in perhaps all of screenwriting Star Wars history. Yes. Like, you put all your co- characters in a corner, and once again, the solution is to bring back Luke or someone who uses the Force, who just pops out of nowhere at the most opportune time. Yeah, and not only that, but they, they decided to kind of...
1: I, I'm reminded of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could they didn't stop to think if they should. Are you talking about the CGI? (laughs) Yes, I am. Because it would be one thing if they brought back Luke and kept him kind of in the shadows, maybe kept his hood up. Right. Or, you know, done something to kind of um, not to focus our attention on a digital performance, if that's what you want to call it, that is clearly not up to
0: snuff. Because yeah, it like it doesn't look like motion capture because it's so bad. It actually looks like someone rendered Luke from an EA game and just put him in the TV series.
1: Yeah, and, and then I was especially uh, taken by the fact that um, uh, there's this guy on YouTube who uh, specializes in deepfake technology, and he uses it for uh, pretty pure. Ends basically just to, (laughs) you know, not, not the kind of like nefarious stuff that you might, that uh, you might've heard of, but he, he basically, he takes footage from movies where, you know, whether it's a story about an actor that might've played a role like, um, yeah, I've seen this Tom Selleck in, um, uh, Indiana Indiana Jones, Jones, for example. Uh, but he, he published a video about the Mandalorian and he showed what his technology, uh, powered by this particular software suite, uh, could do using, uh, a reference base of thousands of images of the real life Mark Hamill, uh, specifically when he was young and when he was, uh, performing Luke in 1983. And he actually did a side by side video. It was only like two minutes long, but it was incredibly convincing. The, the performance was so much better than what Lucasfilm turned out. And, it, it, it boggles my mind. I mean, Lucasfilm has access to all of the money and all of the resources and all the crazy computer ho- horsepower. I don't know how uh, they botched it so bad.
0: So this is kind of one of those things where like when a movie's budget is so big, it's just bound to be bad because they start incorporating every little thing that they can think of. Whereas in times like this, it's like simple is better. Um, you don't need to overthink it. I think there was at one point though, uh, like the words coming his, out of his mouth don't match his lips. Yeah, That's when it really annoys me. Like if you think the skin or the eyes looks weird and it does, I, I think that's just sort of like it depends on how well your eyes are trained. Um, some people can spot it right away. Some can't. But when the sound and the lips don't sink, it's like when films are um, dubbed it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, And you're right, like how could something with so much money and so many resources produce something so, I think in a word, like low quality. Um, The other thing I really didn't like about Luke was that it had done such a good job of like separating itself from all of that stuff. And it was really about the Mandalorian. Like he had to get down and dirty to get things done. Um, and, and literally he does because he like rolls around in mud for like half the episodes, right? Yes. But then all of a sudden it's like none of that ever matters because everything in Star Wars is going to be solved by Skywalker. And so now I'm curious like where does the story go now too? Not only has the tone shifted, the focus has shifted but if you're going to do season three, what is what does season three have in store for the Mandalorian? Is it just a Mandalorian throne? That, that story is not nearly as interesting as Grogu. And we have to follow Grogu because he doesn't appear or he isn't mentioned at all in any of the sequel films, which means at some point, like he's either really well hidden away or he's dead. I I remember thinking right as the
1: credits rolled on that final episode, like, is the show over? Like they hadn't at that point, they hadn't confirmed that they were working on a season three and they've since done that. And they set used that episode as a trailer to set up the Boba Fett series. They could have easily released that little bit of footage as like a little special thing on Disney Plus I don't know an easter egg separately just to, just to do it yeah. I mean we would have understood that it was of it, that that one scene with fat bib fortuna um <laughs> had was
0: following from the events of the uh, the, uh season 2 finale it w- wouldn't have been that hard of all the things they've done right so far why do you think or how do they get to the point where they choose to bring back luke i feel like that's such a like a Lucasfilm, you know, Star Wars merchandising department decision. Narratively, it doesn't make any sense to me either. I know I get at some point, like Luke and Grogu have to meet. I
1: don't know. I, I think they, uh, for me, I think some of the people on The Mandalorian working behind the scenes, for them, I think the show is a bit of a, their little sandbox. And they have they have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, they Some of them are the biggest Star Wars geeks in the world. They have... Basically unlimited budget. And for them, I think a lot of the characters are kind of like action figures that they can sort of bash together. Yeah, fair. And, you know, they, they've they restrained themselves for almost two full seasons in being very specific about keeping Mandalorian away. But it was uh, from the events of the Skywalker saga. But I think it's almost like they were withholding themselves, withholding themselves, and then finally they just couldn't hold back anymore. And they just had to do something Skywalker related because, you know, they, they, they had the ability to do it. They thought about, oh, wouldn't it be a rush to, you know, a nostalgia rush, 100%. wouldn't that be cool? And they did it, but like on a critical and a storytelling level, I, I think it's, it's a flop and they got, a, certainly got a reaction because, uh, for all the people who didn't like it and those tended to be like critics and people who, you know, are, are a little bit more particular about their, their TV, for all the people who didn't like it, they had loads of people, mostly like Last Jedi haters who are Luke fanboys and they they hate the crusty old guy that we see in episode eight. They were coming out in droves to support this decision. They thought it was the coolest thing in the world.
0: So if this was a movie, this was the moment where the theater erupts into cheers, right? Like you're totally right. I, I think they wanted this big payoff moment and they chose Luke to do it, but they... Did it in the most easy way possible. Um, To me, Luke was always the end point. He was never supposed to be like a major plot point. And them getting out of that situation with like Moff Gideon basically in their grasp was supposed to be like a chance to showcase either, you know, Bo-Katan or the Mandalorian or whoever to save the day without needing the force. In my mind, I had envisioned as Grogu being left on a planet and maybe some figure who's, you know, in a brown cloak, you know, an obvious Jedi cloak comes and gets him. And and we don't even have to hear or see Luke ever. And we already kind of know what what's going on. Like,
1: let's say they had structured an episode around that focused more on the fight between Moff Gideon and uh, and the Mandalorian and maybe have that fight scene conclude on a bit of a cliffhanger. And then we think Mandalorian is dead, but then it's actually him who slices his way through all of
0: those evil droids. Well, you're the only person who, who didn't like the finale as much as I didn't like it. Everyone else I talked to really liked that Luke moment. Like they didn't feel the uncanny valley thing was weird. They didn't think the CGI was weird. They were just happy to see Luke come and save the day and kick a bunch of butt. Um, which, by the way, lessens everything else Moff Gideon has done. Like, supposedly he has this, like, new droid stormtrooper army that's indestructible, and then Luke just slices them into bits. Um, the, the power dynamic in Star Wars has never, ever been really, like, established or realized. I, to this day, don't know what power weapon is the most powerful or what strategy is best. Um, it just seems like... Uh, the winners and losers are picked by the screenwriters and they just somehow write it that way.
1: And, and I mean, honestly, in terms of like where season three could go, on one hand, I, I sort of see how the writers' hands were tied a bit this season because Grogu being Force sensitive means that by his very nature, there's got to be some involvement with Jedi or Sith. On that score, like it makes sense to take him out of the show in some way and, and him going off with Luke, sure, that's fine. And so it, it opens up the show again, maybe to getting back into more of the underworld stuff where we're not always wondering if Grogu's gonna get assassinated or kidnapped or something and we can get back into the uh, the less skywalkery stuff. So maybe it's a bit of a reset for them. I don't know. I gotta say it's
0: Wikipedia time. I have questions.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> okay. So Luke coming in means that, you know, as always, the force is this balance between good and evil. So if Luke shows up, there's some reason to believe that the Sith are kind of lurking around. They haven't even been mentioned yet on the show. But where are the Sith now during this time, supposedly? So
1: we're right into the period where Luke is uh, setting up his new Jedi Academy. So as far as the, the heroes think, you know, Skywalker and his friends, they think that Palpatine is dead. Of course, we coming out of Rise of Skywalker, we know that he's not dead. He's just hanging out on that uh, freaky Exegol place, building up his star destroyers and, you know, all those random people that apparently have been living there forever. Um, And so that's pretty much where the Sith are at. There's definitely some hints in season two of The Mandalorian that, the experiments that Dr. Pershing and Moff Gideon are conducting are somehow connected to what ends up being Supreme Leader Snoke.
0: Ah, okay. So that explains the back to tank stuff.
1: Yeah, the back to tank. Like they don't explicitly say, oh, we're doing X to create X, but they, um, but they're definitely experimenting on Force-sensitive creatures like Rogu in in an effort to create some kind of like clones. I think they mentioned it very briefly in that episode uh, directed by Carl Weathers where they blow up the uh, the cloning facility or the the science lab. Right. Um, so there's definitely some hint that that's what the Empire is working on. Uh, maybe they don't entirely know the full scope of Palpatine's plan. Maybe he hasn't bothered to tell them. He's just ordered them to go do a bunch of research. Um, But yeah, that seems to be roughly what's going on there.
0: So is Snoke like some like this deformed alien because they had ins- experimented on him or? Yeah. OK, so he looks the way he does because he's been. He's the product of a lab experiment. This is very poorly
1: explained in Rise of Skywalker, but uh, it's been... (laughs) No kidding. It's been pieced together through various other media like the Visual Dictionary and Wikipedia and stuff. But Snoke is one type of clone that Palpatine works on. Um, Another type of clone is the non-force sensitive clone of Palpatine, which ends up being Rey's father. Um, so they've they've confirmed that Ray's father was not the result of an actual natural union <laughs> between Palpatine and a, and a human woman. Um, he was a a clone of Palpatine that uh, did not have any powers, and
0: yet his daughter developed force sensitive powers. What a convoluted like genealogy DNA sort of like plot hole that they have there. So okay, so that brings me to my other question: is is Moff Gideon? force sensitive, like as in dark side sensitive? I don't think so. They've never uh,
1: shown us anything that would, uh, that would suggest that.
0: Okay. But he can wield a, a dark saber, a lightsaber sort of weapon, right?
1: Yeah. Like as well as, as well as you could without force powers, because the, the history without, uh, the history of the dark saber is that it was created by a Mandalorian Jedi. Right. Um, so it would have been created for that person and they would have been able to wield it to the, the height of of, uh, its abilities, basically. And ever since then, the Darksaber's been passed down to non-force-sensitive Mandalorians who maybe they can't pull off cool flips and kicks and (laughs) uh, force pushes while they're using the Darksaber, but they can still, you know, if they're handy with a blade of non-laser type, uh, they could probably uh,
0: manage the the Darksaber in a fight. Okay, so that brings me to my next question. How strong exactly is Beskar Steel? It can like block lasers and it can block lightsabers. Like this is the most powerful thing ever. Like screw the lightsaber, just get Beskar steel, Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> well, except we
1: see the the limits of Beskar in that final episode, where um, the Mandalorian is using his Beskar spear against Moff Gideon's dark and as we see the uh, the dark make extended contact with the spear, right, it gets red. It gets red and hot, so that's kind of implies that if uh, that if they were locked in a in a duel for too long, or if the contact was there for too long, that eventually the Beskar would lose. That's true, because Qui Gon Jinn in Episode One melts a blast door with his lightsaber. Yeah, but we see how long it takes him to get through. So you know, those are that kind of gives us a, a sense of right, okay. what we're dealing with there. So yeah, the the Mandalorian can fend off Moff Gideon for extended periods of time as long as uh, they don't get stuck in one move for mm-hmm. too long. Right. Okay, so
0: my last question is: Has there ever been like we know that Je- Luke sets up like a new Jedi Order on on that planet? I can't remember the name. So, has Grogu ever been mentioned in any other media other than The Mandalorian? No. No, this is his first time appearance, and now
1: it's up to all of the the lovely people at Lucasfilm to try to fill in all the gaps. And they have to decide, you know, does Grogu actually make it back to that Jedi Academy? Was he there for however, like how many decades uh, lead up until Ben Solo, who becomes uh, Kylo Ren? Was Grogu there when Kylo Ren storms the the new temple and kills all of the Jedi? Does he kill Grogu? Do you think? Well,
0: yeah, that's the that's the big question, isn't it? Yeah, is that what you think it is? How do you think Grogu dies? Maybe he oh. has ulcers. Right? <laughs> Maybe he has all ulcers. those macarons he eats. He's eating not a balanced diet. Like that guy, that kid puts anything in his mouth. Yeah, man. I, I don't know. I mean,
1: all we know about uh, uh, Yoda species is that they kind of have this weird ramp up to being fully mature. So apparently, Grogu will be baby like up until he gets to be about a hundred. And then suddenly he'll be old enough to be like an adult. I guess he'll be in the (laughs) the equivalent of like Yoda's species when they're in their 20s. So,
0: (laughs) Could you imagine going to sleep one night next to a kid and then waking up the next day? It's like an 80 year old dude. (laughs) 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 Holy hell, this is like Benjamin Button on fast forward. And this is like the inherent difficulty of Star Wars is that... Every word has to be so carefully thought out because people's imaginations will run wild, right? And one little error throws off the continuity of the entire thing. Because, and it's easy to do because none of it's ever released in chronological order for whatever reason. Then, then you're relying on all these other publications
1: like the comic books and the uh, novels and the, the visual dictionary of all things uh, where they've they've kind of gone through and they've filled, sketched in all those details. Which admittedly frustrates a lot of people because I think, you know, a lot of fans out there would just prefer it to be uh, worked in a, in, in a more organic way into the scripts of the, the shows and true, movies. True, true.
0: All right. That ends our Wikipedia segment. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. That was really great. Really informative. I love this new segment. Yeah. Well, looking forward to
1: doing it for however many uh, Star Wars shows that Lucasfilm has in the pipes. There's Oh, like, for the rest of our th- lives. Th- there- there's like, yeah. what, 10 shows and movies coming out on Disney Plus in the next couple of years. So I- I'm
0: already betting that half of them are going to be terrible.
1: Yeah. I, I, I don't have my hopes up. I, I think a few of them are just, uh, <laughs> yeah. But we'll, we'll get to those when we get to those. Um, do, you, do we want to hop over into, a, uh, while we're sort of fired up about angry stuff, do you want to get into Wonder Woman 1984? I've never been one for rules. The answer is always more. They will never find us.
0: I forgot to tell you what radar.
1: Will they? Will they shoot at us?
0: So we talked about in the intro how difficult it was to find this film and stream it at home, and I got to tell you, it was totally not worth the effort. I had, you know, I think
1: if I remember correctly, when the embargo lifted on this movie, there was a rush of really positive reviews and yes. And then and I remember texting you about this. Yeah, and you were like, is the hype real? And I was like, honestly, I mean, with the embargo lifted, I, uh, I, I didn't want to put too much stock in it because it felt, it mm-hmm. felt like a whole lot of everyone saying the same thing all at once, which seems a bit suspicious right. to me. So then of course, uh, hit broader release on the 25th. And here we are looking over the the actual critical reception. It's sitting just above Fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And the majority of the like professional critics responses that I've read are pretty lukewarm on this thing. And I have to agree with them. It's just, uh, it's a very mediocre
0: sequel. I agree. So like for this movie, because I was so hyped for it and I really wanted it to be good, to be honest, I really avoided all the reviews, but it like, I couldn't help it. I think it was like a week before the release date on Twitter. Like there was just a massive amount of positive things that people had to say about this movie. Like, you know, it was epic. It was, um, you know, like a worthy successor. This is another huge hit for Warner Brothers, blah, blah, blah. And then about like an hour into the movie, I kind of caught myself falling asleep a little (laughs) because it was so unexciting. Um, So, And there were a lot of things that were different about it that I didn't expect. So right off the bat, um, we're kind of reintroduced to this Wonder Woman backstory again. And and she's like this little girl who's like training on mascara. And uh, like to this day, I still don't really know what the point of that whole scene was anyway, because it seems like the lesson that she learned that day didn't really um, matter at the end. Like it wasn't a huge factor. Yeah, very tangentially. Yeah. But the first scene... In the, in the mall, uh, which is like what you see a lot of in the trailer, that felt like a Saturday cartoon to me. In the previous Wonder Woman, like the action was pretty serious. It's pretty real. There are tanks, there are people dying. It was the war. It was awful. And now Wonder Woman is relegated to saving People from mall, people who robbed the mall. I didn't quite get it. And all the in the meantime, she's like winking at kids and using her lasso to like jump all over the place. None of it made any sense. It was all fluff.
1: Oh yeah, and there was no there. There's a there's a term that I really like about action scenes, um, coined by. Patrick Willems on YouTube, he does a great series of video essays and he talks about the geography of an action scene. <laughs> yeah. That's how you kind of orient yourself in the space where an action scene is taking place, whether it's a car chase or in this case, a, a big fight in a mall. And you have to get a sense of like, you know, don't. To- orient yourself so you know where the villains are, where the hero is, and how certain action scenes take place. Otherwise, it's just a jumble, and you might as well just cut the whole scene out. And that's honestly what this mall fight scene felt like. You know, uh, she was in one place, then she was in another. People were bouncing between levels. Her lasso was looping around certain things and then tying other people to each other. And it, it, uh, it just felt like, you know, just a lot of dazzle and wow without any real weight
0: to it. And she was, you know, winking at kids, smiling at the camera it, it was it felt very comical it lacked the realism of the first film and but then in terms of realism they tried to tie it with like historical figures in 1984 so you saw reagan
1: although we're, we're supposed to believe that that's loosely inspired by reagan it's not supposed to be reagan himself yeah but i mean come I on. know i patty patty jenkins claimed that she deliberately tried to make him not look like reagan but i don't know the similarities both in his
0: In his voice. and That's so stupid. Why not just make a fictional president? And what bugged me most is that Wonder Woman never actually talks to the president. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, the Cold War setting that they're in... Why 1984? It doesn't make any sense. They don't even play 80s music for the entire film. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, I got to say, like, the wardrobe didn't scream 80s to me other than the fanny pack. And that was the only thing that was tangentially related to why this film had to take place in the 80s.
1: Yeah. These parts that we're talking about so far, they're some of the more technical elements. But honestly, my biggest problem with the entire movie is the core premise, the Dreamstone thing. So, when, when we Th- that's
0: a slippery when, slope, when we eh? pick
1: up uh the action, uh, the reason why she's in the mall is she's sort of sniffing out this uh illegal antiquities trading business that's operating behind a jewelry store, and wait
0: she's not sniffing it out. That was a coincidence,
1: oh yeah, true, okay, so even worse,
0: yeah, so right right off the bat, it was like a coincidental thing that this plot gets moving, yes, yeah,, and- uh,
1: but anyway, there's some uh antiquities from that illegal business that get brought back to the Smithsonian where Diana Wonder Woman uh, works alongside Barbara Minerva, who's played by Kristen Wiig. And one of uh, one of these pieces is this mysterious stone that has some sort of inscription on it. And both Barbara and Diana have a hard time deciphering what it means and they're not entirely sure. Um, But what's very obvious is that the stone is of extreme importance to this one Maxwell Lord, played by Pedro Pascal, who's this seemingly wealthy investor in the museum, businessman. His commercials are all over the TV talking about opportunities to invest in oil extraction. And what becomes obvious is that this stone was created by a god from the Greek pantheon who's never really expressly named or really introduced to us, but he's kind of described as being kind of like Loki from Marvel. He's a trickster god. And he's created this stone that allows you to make a wish on it, but it will take something that's very precious to you in exchange. And this sets off this kind of domino effect of wishes being granted and Maxwell Lord transforming into the dreamstone himself so people can make wishes on him so that he can take their
0: power and and health from them That exchange never made this sense to me by the way
1: Getting back to like how this hurts the movie is that the script loses track of who has been granted wishes the logic of why anyone would ask for something in particular uh what they what they would actually give away in return and it builds and builds up until this point where we just have rioting in the streets, nuclear war being threatened, and finally, the entire thing is concluded not because of, and you pointed this out in your review quite well, not because of anything that Wonder Woman does, but just because Maxwell Lord decides that he's going to renounce his wish of his own accord. He sees that his, what he's doing is threatening his son, and so he just stops. <laughs> yeah. So what is that, you know, that, 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 that basically... Erases so, the stakes of the so entire it's, movie. It's kind of
0: fun to think about these things. So Max wishes that he is the stone, right? So he he has the ability. What if his son touches his touches him and says, I'd like to have a happy family? What happens to to Max's wishes then? Like I there's always these like logical incongruities when you do these type of things. Yeah. And I felt like for the screenwriters, it might have been a choice to make the scope bigger. Because if you remember back in the sequel, it was about World War One, right? Which was like, like the dominant event of that era, of that age. 1984 is set in the middle of the Cold War. And like I said before, it's not exactly like a huge pivotal moment in that year. Right. And even if it was, they completely ignored that big historical event where Reagan jokes about bombing Russia. And if you're going to tie in like, quote unquote, fictional Reagan, which we know he's not, why don't you just tie that in and make it even more realistic? So it's also never really understood why Wonder Woman involves herself in this other than the fact that she herself needs to right a wrong that she did. And never once does she contemplate like all the moral ramifications of what she's doing. The entire time she spent with uh, Steve Trevor is basically time that she could have spent Trying to track down this, this you know, mystical artifact that's gone missing. Yeah. And at the same time, too, remember when she's tracked down Maxwell Lord on the convoy on the highway, that action sequence is one of those Hollywood action sequences where the stakes are raised for the dumbest reasons. And that includes random kids playing in the middle of the street, playing soccer in the middle street, yeah. on a highway in the middle of a desert. That doesn't make any sense at all. You're artificially raising the stakes when really they're pretty low already because at that point, and I think it was like, I, I looked at the timestamp, it was about like an hour or 90 minutes into the movie. That's how long it takes Patty Jenkins to set everything up and have the first real conflict take place.
1: Yeah. And even then, it's it's sort of uh, prompted by a bit of a, uh, a contrivance anyway, because that chase is set up by Diana and Steve driving up alongside the convoy in their Jeep.
0: And then her seeing Max, like, by coincidence. He,
1: she sees Max, Max sees her, but at this point, Max doesn't know that she's Wonder Woman. Max has no reason to think that she poses a threat to him, but yet he immediately orders that they force... Diana and Steve off the road. So it's it's completely brought about for the purposes of plot and there's absolutely no logic going into it. When we getting back to the wishing thing for a second, when the the son, Maxwell Lord's son is making various wishes, I think he makes at least two wishes for Maxwell to be happy, but then later on to, for Maxwell to join the sun back in Washington while Maxwell was busy with his world domination plot. And unlike all the other wishes that we'd seen up until that point, no, neither of them happen immediately. You know, we've we've seen how the wishes wishes are supposed to take place instantaneously. So the movie, the, the script plays very fast and loose with, with how the wishing works.
0: And the last part that got me too is the fact that everyone renounced their wish. Yeah. How is that possible? That makes zero sense whatsoever. Yeah, and it, it
1: implies that All of the wishing is bad and that everything that anybody wished for when they were informed that they had this magical wishing power was a bad thing and that they would want to renounce it. The only examples of wishes that we see are like uh, a woman wishing that all Irish people will leave and then the Irish guy wishing back that that woman will die.
0: And and it's like it's always wishes that are like the most negative, right? What if some kid wishes that for world peace? Yes. What happens then? Are they going to renounce that wish? Should they renounce that wish? Anyway, there's so many holes in this movie. I could go on forever about how horrible this- Yeah,
1: you could do a whole episode on it. I mean, suffice it to say that, and for anybody who's who's out there who takes a much more kind of forgiving mm-hmm. view of superhero movies where, you know, you might say, oh, it's just a, uh, based on a comic book. It's supposed to be light and airy and superhero-y and, you know, you're not supposed to think about it too much. The challenge that I put to that is the, this story is- basically balancing on the precipice of nuclear war <laughs> until Maxwell Lord decides to renounce his wish they're basically implying that both the USSR and the U- US are about to completely annihilate each other with nuclear weapons so I
0: don't know how and you, Wonder you, Woman is helpless yeah
1: and I don't know how you're supposed to not take that if you if you're not taking that part of the story seriously then why can't you take all of these logical problems
0: seriously I can't I really can't think of a superhero film where the ending doesn't involve the superhero doing something big in scope rather than just tying a lasso to Maxwell's leg and pleading for everyone to save the world for you. That to me is the biggest is the most unsuperhero like move I could think of. Yeah. It's like she's helpless. And, and for the most, for most of the movie, she does seem that way because she also seems very codependent on Steve Trevor. Um, A love story that never made much sense to me by the way, but again, I think his inclusion is one of those things where, uh, like The Mandalorian, people wanted Chris Pine to come back. Who cares about the narrative? We need to have this guy back because he can put butts in the seats and eyeballs on screens. Yeah. The one redeeming part of this movie is, I think, the villain. I don't think... The villain was written particularly well, but Kristen Wiig is a very compelling villain. A villain who, by the way, has almost no real connection with Maxwell Lord. No. Like, there are almost two separate plots going on. There
1: are. Another another problem with this movie is that the, the outside of Kristen Wiig not wanting to relinquish, and we haven't even talked about this, the, the conceit that people think that Kristen Wiig is ugly, therefore she needs to make a wish on the, on the Dreamstone that uh, people think she's sexy, and then subsequently wish that she has cat powers. I mean, she- Apex Predator- Excuse me. (laughs) She wishes that she had uh, that she had all of Diana's popularity and good looks, but she doesn't know that Diana is Wonder Woman. So how would she why would the Dreamstone also grant her mysterious superpowers?
0: I don't know. Well, actually, that part makes sense, because there was one line where Kristen Wiig says, I didn't expect like to have these things when I wish to be you. So that was the way I took it. That was a reference to her superpower. What I don't get, and I agree with you is on this, is why she has to look like a cheetah. Yeah. Other than the fact that cheetah is the comic book villain. But at the same time, Cheetah kind of goes out like a punk. Yeah.
1: <laughs> She's able to swing around on the, the electrical cable and right. not get shocked. But it's not until this like bit of dialogue happens when they're submerged in the water, then all of a sudden the electricity can knock her out. I don't know.
0: Right. And Kristen Wiig makes like a really good... Turns in a really good performance to make her a compelling villain. Um, The the way she's written, though, is she's like the ugly duckling who gets the mid-movie makeover in the rom-com, right? Where she's supposed to be, you know, this ugly duckling. Nobody cares about her PhD. And then she becomes this, like, sexy cat. Yeah. And then all of a sudden people are supposed to care. She was one of the few things I enjoyed about this. I didn't like... Diana Prince's character. I thought the performance was okay because it's hard to see Gal Gadot in this role. By the way, should we mention uh, Linda Carter? (laughs) We can. I mean, that frustrated me as well. Yeah. What the hell is up with that? Like if they're just tackling on mythology, that doesn't make any sense. This this is a month
1: where it seems like uh, all big name franchises are susceptible to hollow nostalgia because... The They they seem to, they're like, oh, isn't it cool if we bring back Linda Carter, the original TV's Wonder Woman, uh, in a random role as an Amazonian. Um, but they tack it on in a you know, mid-credits scene, implying that the character she plays, Asteria, one of Themyscira's uh, most famous warriors, has been alive this entire time. Not helping Diana, not being any aware.
0: Yeah, which runs against all the things that the Amazons stand for. Yeah, not, not for.
1: being aware at all of what Diana and Wonder Diana slash Wonder Woman is doing in the world. And also uh, cheapening the whole sequence where they set up her character by saying that she sacrificed herself uh, for the sake of keeping Themyscira walled off from the world.
0: Wouldn't it be awesome if Wonder Woman and Linda Carter like teamed up together at the end? That would have been pretty cool, right? Sure, much cooler than Linda Carter being like this goddess who who lives in anonymity in in the general public, you know. Yeah,
1: uh, I mean that's uh, well, and as long as we're talking, well, this this segment is going on forever, but, <laughs> but uh, they they don't even bother to conclude the Maxwell Lord bit. They. They just show him <laughs> yeah, reuniting with his son and, you know, he doesn't go to prison. He doesn't get banished. Nothing happens to him. Literally nothing happens to him.
0: Yeah, there's no consequences, so but
1: everything is rewound. So anyway,
0: uh, so f- like uh, we should move on, but <laughs> I agree. I, I, maybe we'll talk about this some other time, but we really need to move on because there's so many things to talk about Wonder Woman and we won't really know more until later Um, because we need some time to maybe digest a little bit. Although I don't think our stances on this movie will change. I came in at two and a half out of four because I was feeling generous. Yeah. I could easily go two out of four. Yeah, I'm two out of four for sure. I mean, it... And I I don't even know where that two comes from. Like it could just be because it's actually you know soothing or pleasurable to see like a movie a brand new movie on my screen.
1: Yeah, I mean I I don't want to. Some people have been describing it the movie as repulsive garbage for reasons that we can't we don't have time to get into. So I'm not going to go that far. I think it's you know at least yeah, it's, it's not trash. They,
0: but production it's not
1: wise good. it's fine. The effects are fine. The cinematography is fine. All those things. But yeah, it is um uh, it is definitely not something that's worth the full $30 for the premium VOD rental ticket. Oh yeah.
0: I was glad I I got to use my scene points for this. So I only paid half the price. That made me feel a lot better.
1: Uh, So let's, let's keep the, the hate train going here because let's talk about another streamer, the midnight sky.
0: That's either. It's a spaceship that we hoped would be our future. I have to warn them about the conditions on earth. I don't know all the details. It started with a mistake.
1: We'll keep this one short because we want to move on to something we actually liked.
0: Well, there's really nothing to talk about in this film.
1: Yeah, that's the problem with it. It is uh, a a movie that I had hoped for a number of months would be actually quite good. It ticked a lot of boxes for me. Um, This is a movie directed by George Clooney. It's a sci-fi premise direct to Netflix with a bit of a global catastrophe slash global pandemic kind of angle to it. So very uh, timely in that sense. But honestly, it just feels like two very different movies crammed together. <laughs> yes. And the each individual movie needed to be like an hour and a half long in order to even hope to
0: develop its characters. George Clooney is incapable of making an interesting movie.
1: I still hold that he has made a couple of good movies, but he is definitely, yeah, he's not one of the better actors turned directors by any means.
0: His films never seem to induce any drama. Like I'm thinking Monuments Men, uh, Leatherheads, even Good Night and Good Luck. I thought... Was really strong because of its performances and its content, not because there was any real dramatic tension in the films. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I I don't know why Clooney finds this so hard, but you're right. There's two films. There's two clearly interesting conflicts, as you know, cliched as they are. But I don't understand why he needed to include both. George Clooney plays uh, Augustine Lofthouse, who is an astrophysicist,
1: and through a couple of flashbacks, we see that he has been working for a long time to discover an exoplanet where humanity can flee to because Earth is falling apart, it's dying, humanity needs to move elsewhere. So in those flashbacks, we see that he was instrumental in discovering that there's this planet, this, or the not this planet, a moon orbiting Jupiter that somehow we didn't know about, that is hospitable to life. In the non-flashback portions of the movie, the bulk of the movie, uh, the two stories that we follow are George Clooney's character uh, who has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. He's planning to live out his last days on uh, this scientific station up in the above the Arctic Circle. And he watches as um, this environmental catastrophe, which is never really fully described. All we know is that it's wiping out huge huge portions of life on earth and that the only hospitable parts of earth left are going to be bunkers underground. And he's planning to just sort of see this out. He's, uh, he's been diagnosed with an illness, so he doesn't plan to live much longer, but then he comes across what he believes is a child that's been left behind by the last humans to live with him at the station. As, just as he begins to get to know this girl, he discovers that there's one active space mission that is coming back from the moon that he discovered orbiting Jupiter. And he feels like it's his mission to inform these, uh, these astronauts that they're coming back to a ruined planet and that they should do something else. They should turn around, and go back to the colony where they are coming from. So that sets up the main kind of action of the of the story. And we're always shifting back and forth between space and George Clooney. And that's kind of all that happens. They, you know, they make radio contact, a few. Th- Things uh, conspire to separate that radio contact for a few chunks of the movie. But then he accomplishes his goal. Woohoo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there's like um, so there's that, that space sort of sci- uh, uh, sci-fi thriller where, you know, humanity has to find a new planet to inhabit before everyone dies. There's that story. And then there's that other story in the Arctic or wherever he is where it's a, a survival movie where he has to move from one outpost to another with limited supplies, you know, failing health, blah, 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 blah. Now, what gets me, though, is that there's a twist. And actually, I don't care if I spoil this or not. There's a little girl who shows up in the outpost where George Clooney is, even though it's supposedly abandoned. And so the story is, is that this little girl is a hallucination because it's revealed that this little girl... Who is his daughter? Had grown up uh, into and become like a NASA pilot. I think it was. Yeah, or she's a a scientist on the the mission that's coming back to Earth. Right, right. But because Clooney and his fictional wife had an estranged relationship, um, he was kind of like this absentee, you know, like space obsessed dad. Um, they don't really connect, and we, the audience, are supposed to connect. Now, there's nothing wrong with this. Um, I think this is a cheap way to to make to drum up drama. To be honest, but at the same time, prior to that event, we never got the hint that George Clooney was a unhinged or b hallucinating like it just pops out of nowhere that uh, this emotional, dramatic bomb just gets dropped on you. And instead of going, oh, you're kind of going, huh? It's an easy out, basically, for the story. And right. they exactly can you believe this movie cost a hundred million dollars to make? Uh, yeah. I mean, you you
1: can see it in some of the shots of the ship moving through space. Um, and they they shot on the same super high-tech stage that they use for the
0: Mandalorian called the volume. So Clooney tells them that okay, well, you guys shouldn't come back because Earth has is gone. Everyone's deserted. Everyone's gone away. But these two pilots insist on going home because they had made a promise to their families, right? That, to me, was probably the most interesting part of the film. It's just too bad we never really get to understand the people on that spaceship. And also, the people on the ground. Like, If you think about The Martian with that Matt Damon movie, they did such a good job of fleshing out the characters in the spaceship and and him on the ground and then the characters uh, in Houston. Um, the Midnight Sky doesn't do any of this stuff. You only get piecemeal, you know, snippets of what people are like, but they're never really fleshed out. Um, I have no idea where the time goes in this film, to be honest, um, because it does seem like it doesn't accomplish a lot of anything.
1: Yeah, honestly, it should have been, you know, uh, they should have gotten rid of, most of the survival stuff of him trying to move from one station to the other. (laughs) While undergoing dialysis? Yes, I agree. That made no sense. There were a few interesting details in there, but nothing that really supported devoting such a huge chunk of runtime to that. And honestly, the movie should have just chosen whether its lead is Clooney or Felicity Jones as Iris. They should have either kept the astronauts on board the Spaceship, the mysterious figures who Clooney is trying to reach out to so that we have more time to empathize with him and maybe deal with his, you know, whatever uh, hangups were preventing him from connecting with his wife in the flashback scenes. And so that way, when when he does finally establish co- uh, contact with the astronauts, they're sort of mysterious, and we're sort of wondering exactly what's going to happen there. Um, or the movie should have been entirely about the astronauts, and Clooney is the mysterious figure, right. Who they're trying to they're trying to establish contact with, because when you're giving them both equal weight, they kind of already know everything about each other by the time that one radio connection is made, and once the radio connection is made. Not like, you know, their plans don't really change all that much outside of them deciding, oh, a few of us are going to return to Earth and a few of us are going to loop back to the colony that we came from.
0: I think jumping on that point, too, is that you never get the sense that there's imminent danger or conflict or villain. Despite
1: the fact that they like, you know, nearly wrecked the ship a couple of times. But yeah, it doesn't feel super dangerous because you kind of know that by that point, radio contact hasn't happened And that's kind of a necessity to the movie ending. So
0: it's almost like there's a certain amount of plot armor. Yeah, of course. And you couldn't be more sure of the plot armor when um, Clooney is in that trailer, I think. The ice beneath him breaks. Yes. And... You're like, this is some old dude who's dying of cancer and yet he's actually able to climb out of this like huge hole in the ice and get on a snowmobile and cruise to safety. That meant, that didn't make a lot of sense either. The other, My final point is what is The Midnight Sky? Like the title has nothing to do with the film, the contents of the film.
1: Outside of just like an abstract reference to the, the space that Clooney looks out at, you know, and he imagines, imagines what, uh, uh, what might be beyond while we're still, we're seeing the other side of what he's seeing, but yeah, it doesn't really have much of a thematic weight to it. It doesn't connect back to the actions of the characters very much. And yeah, uh, outside of the timeliness of the kind of ravaging of the globe with whatever catastrophe is happening, um, it doesn't really leave you with very much to cling to. Shall we move on to more anger then? Well, are we talking about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? <laughs> That's right. Okay.
0: <laughs> that movie is so full of anger, I don't even know if there's any pauses in between. I got my time coming to me. Hey! You don't know nothing about what kind of blood I got, what kind of heart I got, B-D. Come on. Come on! So this is a movie uh, that's adapted from a stage play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and it stars Chadwick Boseman in his final theatrical role, correct? Yeah, I think so. And it also stars um, Viola Davis as Ma Rainey, who is a influential blues singer. And so- Mother of the blues. The mother of the blues. And so this film is about Chadwick Boseman, who's a member in her band, and Ma Rainey duking it out in a recording session, and it's a battle of willpower and a battle for popularity and a battle for money. So set in 1920 Chicago, Ma Rainey is a a black singer in a recording studio owned by a white person. So there's already conflict there. She arrives late, so that sets off the people in the studio. Meanwhile, Chadwick Boseman is downstairs practicing, but he refuses to play the version that Ma Rainey wants. He wants to play his version because he thinks his version is better. And so the movie, the entire movie is about these two people basically yelling at each other.
1: Yep. Yep. And, well, all of the, the side characters sort of yelling at other side
0: characters or at the two main characters. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of yelling and conflict going on in this movie. Um, not a lot of fuzzy good feelings, even at the end, especially at the end, I should say. This is a Denzel Washington production, and she, he's become more of a producer uh, recently. And this is, I think, the second time he's adop- he's adapted to play. The first one being Fences, which I think was... A- yeah, by the same playwright. right. Uh, And I I think Fences was a far superior film. This film isn't bad per se. I think it's fine. But there's something about a stage play being adapted into film that I think loses a little bit of the urgency, loses a bit of the dramatic flair that you see when you see a a live stage play. The scope uh, for something like this, because it's so small, it feels small in the film. Yeah.
1: And well, it just feels like they have... They've taken the stage play and then they've pointed a camera where the audience would have sit, sat. Right. Basically, we do get a couple of close-ups. With the camera, does drift in and out of the space a little bit, but it does not take us out of the kind of box of a st- of a theater venue in the way that a, that a movie should. You know where where we see the the world around the characters and not just, you know, this one kind of angle at them.
0: Yeah, we do get a little glimpse cuz they have like footage, archival footage of like newspapers and and real life photographs of the the singers and the band members. Sure. But that's about it. But, I mean, that's something that at, at a stage play you could project
1: that on a screen right, while the audience is filtering in after they bought their tickets, you know. Um so yeah, the, it doesn't it doesn't have a cinematic feel to it and it, honestly, it's a problem that I identified with fences as well. When I saw that, that felt like it, um, it looked almost identical to the, the pictures of the set that was constructed for the stage version. And it all takes place in uh, basically a single location, the the backyard of the family home in that play. And in this one, it's basically two locations. It's the practice room down in the basement and then the main recording studio. And the, and the dialogue is also it's delivered with a very stagey kind of feeling where people almost have their their retorts already ready and waiting to deploy after they've been yelled at. You know, it, uh, there's a kind of rapid, rapid fire n- nature to it that.
0: Yeah, it doesn't match dialogue as you would see it in other films. No, it is monologue after monologue after monologue. Yeah. And it works because Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman are so good. But sometimes it's easy to lose track of where you are and where they are and what exactly they're fighting about. Yeah, they don't really get to work through their dispute very much at all.
1: Uh, Pretty much all their their dispute even really... Oils down to is the fact that Ma Rainey espouses a, an old fashioned version of the blues, and Levy, the character played by Chadwick Boseman, he's kind of getting closer to what will eventually become jazz or bebop, and he's interested in uh, improvising and not playing the standards in the way that uh, Ma Rainey's band is used to. Right. You know, and, and so they the, they just have this these clashing ideologies when it comes to artistry and music, uh, but then they they kind of map those onto the personality issues as well, where, you know, the uh, Levy thinks that he's too good for the band and Ma Rainey thinks
0: that she's got a lot more power than she really has. By the time we meet these characters, they're already very much fleshed out. And a lot of their past history is revealed through monologue, especially for our Chadwick Boseman's character, Levy. And he explains why he is the way he is and why he has a different kind of relationship with uh, the white managers of of the music company. From a stage point of view, it makes sense if you're just talking to people and telling them about this story. But from a movie standpoint, you can't just tell people, you need to show them. So there's a visual element that's missing in telling Ma Rainey and Levy's backstory that I think would have been really helpful and dramatic. Instead, we get a bunch of close close-ups. We get a bunch of spit <laughs> thrown at each other. And this goes on for about two hours. Not even that, because uh, the the runtime is like 90 minutes. Oh, it feels long. Right. You're right. 94 minutes. It, it just feels that long, though, because it takes so much time for people to explain themselves. I almost wish that this movie had a prequel, because I feel like the prequel would have had a lot more interesting to th- things to say about how Ma Rainey and Levy got to where they are. The ending was totally, totally unexpected. Uh, were you familiar with the play before watching the movie?
1: I wasn't, but I mean, uh, so spoilers ahead if you haven't watched it, but uh, essentially Levy gets turned down by everyone. He gets fired by Ma Rainey. The white producers at the studio decline to produce the Music that he's written and it just to him, it feels like his entire life is over and, you know, uh, everyone's against him. So uh, one of the other session musicians comes down and accidentally scuffs his brand new shoes and that's all the excuse Levy needs to stab him out of nowhere, kill him, just kill him, and that's basically how the uh, how the movie ends. You know, they the guy bleeds out on the floor of the practice room, and then there's a tiny little coda where it's revealed that the the white uh, recording studio engineers have decided to record one of Levy's songs after all, except with an all white ensemble. So that's kind of like the the final kind of uh, assault in the wound as it were where yeah not only did levy not get to actually realize his dream but it was stolen away by the white man that he's so uh, fearful of um, but so the, this so far this episode has been about a lot of things that we really didn't like unfortunately so why a do, lot
0: of anger
1: yeah why don't we transition to something that makes us a, a little bit sad but also cheers us up a little bit and that would have to be Pixar's soul <laughs>
0: No, it's the great before. This is where new souls get their personalities, quirks, and interest before they go to Earth. Meet 22. I don't want to go to Earth. Stop fighting this. I don't want to. Um,
1: and we're not talking about the soul of the studio here. We're talking about their new movie, Soul, uh, directed by Pete Doctor, uh, which was originally slated for a theatrical release in November, but Disney wisely turned it into a Disney Plus exclusive uh, in response to the pandemic. Um, so... Being that this was directed by Pete Doctor, there's some obvious connections thematically to Inside Out, which was uh, his last big smash. Yep, that was awesome. Trying to depict a very unknowable, um, intangible type of thing, which in this case is uh, the afterlife or the before life, depending on how you uh, look at it. And this story follows Joe who's a jazz musician in New York, but uh, he's really just uh, able to play jazz in his spare time. And his main source of income is as a middle school jazz teacher. So the movie opens with him desperately trying to lead this group of uh, not very excited young musicians. And they're kind of like honking and uh, plinking their way through a performance. So we get the, the vibe that he's not super happy with his career and he would really like to make it big as a, professional musician. And he finds out that he's got an opportunity at a big gig with a trendy jazz musician being offered to him by a former student. And just when he's all fired up and he thinks this is his big break, he has an accident and his soul gets taken into the great before, which is Pixar's idea, a big Pete doctor's idea of where souls go just before they die. And Joe is not happy with this. His soul decides that he's been cheated of his big break. So he teams up with an errant soul named 22 voiced by Tina Fey. To try to get back
0: to his body. It's a pretty like heavy premise if you think about it, because there's a lot of things going on, right? There's there's a real life world where Joe has to contend with the fact that this is his big break, but his mother strong, or strongly disapproves. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, she yeah. wants him to take the middle school job more seriously because that's the job that, you know, has uh, employment benefits, health insurance, yada, yada, yada. The other part is this abstract world that Pete Doctor created, which I think was m- my most favorite part of the movie. They're kind of these like cubist um, 2D characters, and they're all named Jerry. <laughs> and they populate this world, and their job is to make sure that these souls are um, in order. That every soul is counted, that every new life born into the world is given a soul, and every person who dies in the world uh, has their soul taken away and sent to what is it, the Great Beyond? Uh yeah. The the they they're
1: not so specific as to call it like heaven or or you know anything like that. Right, right. But they call it the great yeah. beyond, I yeah.
0: think. Yeah, exactly. So um so there's a little inside out there in which like these abstract concepts are personified into these really wacky characters. Yeah. Where I think this kind of falls apart relative to Inside Out is that some of these abstract characters and what exactly Joe has to do to basically put his soul back into his own body again was never really clear. I always was a little confused as to what his relationship with 22 was and what exactly 22 did that allowed him to become Joe again? Did it ever confuse you at any point? Because I was. I wasn't too
1: confused about, you know, the actual sequence of events, but the the rules of the universe were a bit fuzzy. I'll, I'll grant you that. They, they talk a lot about before souls are able to enter Earth and, you know, uh, get born into an actual body. Uh, They need to have their personalities completed. And a lot of the traits are just kind of rather arbitrarily assigned to new souls.
0: (laughs) It's like playing the Sims, right? Yeah. And so like one, (laughs) one of them
1: is like, I'm a megalomaniac. And another one is like, I'm aloof. Right. Um, So that those are just like quick little gags of, uh, you know, in the dialogue, uh, but then it's it's thought that there's this final slot on their little uh, chest badge that needs to be filled in by something that's very meaningful to them, some activity or something that uh, that that needs to happen before they're complete. And Joe reasons that th- this is the soul getting its purpose. He's never really told that, but he kind of infers it, and that drives a lot of the mm-hmm. action. He believes that if he can help. 22, who's a soul who has no interest in going to Earth, if he can help her find her purpose, that he can kind of uh, ride her coattails down to Earth or maybe even steal the badge that she's granted uh, and just take that and get back into his body.
0: Right. But wasn't like the big argument in the movie that is that your life is not defined by your purpose, but the purpose of your life is not defined by what you do. Some, some, something along those lines, right?
1: Yeah, because he assumes the whole time that his purpose is music, but it's kind of hinted that he sort of, he's kind of misunderstanding his purpose a little bit and that maybe his purpose is actually to be a teacher. Right. Even though he doesn't like the kind of boring, square uh, reality of being a teacher in comparison with being a successful jazz musician, he is shown to have a, a pretty positive impact on the students in his class that are interested in music. And he's able to kind of uh, motivate them and keep them interested in music. And the same thing kind of applies to 22, where right. he, he's able to kind of get back into his body, not so much by connecting with his love of music, but by teaching 22 about all of the nice things that
0: can be found uh, about being on Earth. Right, that was the part that got me. Like, What exactly did 22 learn? From Joe, that made her complete. Was it just a, a newfound appetite for life, or was it actually eating pizza?
1: <laughs> it suggested that pizza is the gateway to uh, to wanting to live on Earth. And I mean, there are definitely times I've had pizza and I've felt that way. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but no, I think. But do you know what I mean, though? Like, there's a little like confusion um, because there's another aspect or another POV from the movie where it's the activity that gives you life purpose. So. Uh, for Joe it's teaching not playing but then
1: for 22 it's it's kept a thing purposely vague like they don't specifically they don't specifically say if it's one thing or another it's hinted that it might it might actually be music and that Joe has it backwards he he kind of dismisses 22's interest in music as being something that she only acquired from hanging out with him but it's suggested that she may actually have a stronger connection to music than uh, he gives her credit for. So that may very well be what her purpose is and what allows her to uh, to to go down to earth finally. Um,
0: so this is why this ambiguity in this movie made me feel like this was a lesser movie than Inside Out. Because the, the concepts and, and the general message of the film wasn't always clear. Actually, the one the one part I thought was hilarious on a kind of tangential note is the accountant.
1: Oh yeah, Terry. But yeah, Terry. She's the uh, she's the only one of these kind of uh, abstract uh, line doodle characters who who's a different name. And yeah, it's her job to keep track of the souls that are destined for the great beyond. And then, of course, when Joe goes missing and he doesn't follow the rules, she goes on this mission to uh, put him back in line. And she's actually voiced by Rachel House, who some people may remember from uh, Thor Ragnarok. She plays the head of security to Jeff Goldblum's Grandmaster. But the arena's mainframe for the obedience discs have been deactivated and the slaves have armed themselves. I, I don't like that word. Which mainframe? No, why would I not like mainframe? No. The, uh, Yes, word. Yes, word. Sorry, the
0: prisoners with jobs have armed themselves.
1: Okay, that's better. That's better. In a movie that doesn't have a out-and-out villain, she was kind of the closest kind of
0: character who's an opponent to what's going on. I was expecting her to be a villain, actually, because she was kind of like twiddling her fingers and kind of sniveling in the back. And she was this really stiff character that followed a clear set of rules and never strayed from it. And these are always like the villainous characters in Pixar films, right? Because these are the people with no imagination sure. that only, that A has to be A and B has to be B. Yeah.
1: yeah, she's not villainous in the sense of like wanting to get anything for herself. It's more, uh, she's she's very rule bound and for her the kind of improvisation of a jazz musician like Joe is just kind of totally antithetical
0: to her, <laughs> her way Being one of the talking points about this film, too, is that it doesn't feel like a kid's movie, which I 100% agree with. I think the concepts are too tough for a kid, and even if this they were targeting kids, uh, as their demographic, it, it, it lacked a lot of the cutesy stuff that Pixar has.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some, uh, there's definitely things that drive Joe's character that. Kids would never have to think about things like, you know, how to be professional
0: on the job. And Pixar has always done like a really good job of straddling that line. So Inside Out is the rare movie where like kids and adults can watch a movie, take different ways from it, but enjoy it equal amounts. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel the same way for Soul. I feel like this is more an adult film. Um, with little cute elements in it, and it didn't seem like a Pixar film for kids.
1: I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I would be interested to actually get a real kids' take on it because, right? Uh, whereas Inside Out, you can, yeah, you're right. Like both kids and adults can follow the main action and get basically the same thing out of it. Um, mm-hmm. Kids will get a slightly different perspective, and adults will get a slightly different perspective. But right. this has two very different perspectives on. The actual action. So I think the kids will definitely identify with the more cartoony humor and uh, they'll still I think they'll still be able to follow the gist of it uh, unless they're like super young, like five or younger or something like that. Um, But then as the viewers get older, they'll kind of interact with it on different levels as as they get older. So, uh, yeah, I think I see where you're coming from. I uh, although I think. If there's anything the movie struggles with, it's mostly just differentiating itself from what Inside Out did first in that it's kind of putting a face on very abstract concepts. So it's basically doing a lot of the same things narratively that Inside Out did. So maybe the problem isn't so much with whether or not kids get it, but whether... Um, We've already
0: seen it before. The Freaky Friday swap in this one made more sense than the one in Wonder Woman, for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that basically has to do with like accidental rape, which isn't a fun thing to think about.
0: I mean, I didn't I didn't look at it that way. I just felt really bad for the guy whose soul was stuck in yeah, limbo. Yeah, I mean, either... Because um, he's like, where, where is he when Steve Trevor's in his body? Exactly.
1: Like, does he wink out of existence, or is he kind of sort of aware that he's having sex with an Amazon? Because that would be... That
0: would probably be a win for him, to be honest. <laughs>
1: yeah, if, if it is a win for him, he doesn't seem to uh, connect the dots when he wakes up in the final scene. So, I don't know.
0: Well, I was going to say, the final scene just makes... Makes it even more difficult to to not laugh because she sees him like randomly in the middle of the street, and it's implied that she's kind of interested in him. By the way, that final scene takes place in Christmas. Was that filmed for this release in particular? That had
1: yeah, that had to be a reshoot. I mean, it has nothing to do with anything that happens before it, outside of that connection that she has to that meat puppet that she's talking to. (laughs) So, so, yeah, they clearly reshot that because they knew it was going to be a Christmas release all of a sudden. Okay.
0: All right. That makes a lot more sense because that scene made zero sense whatsoever. If they
1: didn't and if that was in it from the beginning, then it's got to be the weirdest timing ever.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. Okay. So, I wasn't crazy thinking that it was weirdly out of place. Um, I think we need to end this episode though, but final thoughts, final score for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom.
1: Oh, for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I'm coming in like two and a half out of four maybe two out of four it really doesn't have a lot going for it other than the performances it desperately needed different packaging
0: that was my score too uh do you think their acting gets uh,
1: awards attention though chadwick boseman is a strong contender for best supporting actor i don't know about viola davis midnight sky midnight sky uh also kind of middle of the road very i would say like um two out of four, uh, three out of five. So on a five-star scale, I go a little bit higher. But honestly, yeah, not uh, nothing to write home about. Okay, I agree with you there. And then finally, Soul. Uh, for Soul, I'm going uh, four out of five slash uh, three out of four. Um, so a bit of a range there. But yeah, it's uh, very solid stuff. Classic Pixar, uh, better than some of their recent efforts for sure.
0: What recent effort?
1: More interesting than Toy Story 4 and
0: Incredibles 2, which were the two previous features before Onward, so. Yeah, it's been a while since we had a Pixar From. so it was kind of nice to have it back in our library, especially during the pandemic where it seems like no mo- movies were coming up. So I guess I should point out that this episode was kind of our wrap up for 2020, even though a lot of the 2020 films we won't see until January. So this is a episode just covering what we've seen over the holidays. I hope everyone had a good holiday as well. Next episode, we will make a, an effort to catch up on all the prestige films and and maybe do a little bit of preliminary awards talk, maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've been doing it kind of in bits and pieces as we go. But yeah, uh, I think maybe a best and worst of 2020 is definitely in the cards, assuming that these distributors can get their act together and actually make these movies available to us.
0: Right, right. So next episode, hopefully we'll have both seen Promising Young Woman, uh, News of the World, the Tom Hanks movie that's also getting a lot of buzz and uh, a bunch of other stuff that we're hoping to see. So be sure to check us out online at Kinetoscope.ca or on Twitter, Kinetoscope.ca.
1: And head on over to the website for Jason's review of Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, But until next time, my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. And my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.